Welcome to the Religion Unplugged podcast. Um, this is Megan Clark. I'm the managing editor of religionunplugged.com. And today we have with us John Seidel. And John is an author, speaker. He was the managing editor behind the Blaze News site and the editor-in-chief of I Am Second, a site that tells some powerful stories and testimonies of Christians struggling with some deep, dark challenges in their lives. And then he managed digital media for Kirk Cameron, the actor and producer behind several faith-based films like Fireproof. And now John has written a book, his book, Finding Rest, which is officially coming out September 28th. His book is about being diagnosed with anxiety and OCD, but especially how can religious communities better understand mental illness. I'm so glad you're here joining us, John, uh, to talk about these issues. Thank you so, so, so much for having me. I guess, can I say like so uh, any more times, but thank you. Um, just so much respect the work that you're doing, Megan, um, and then what Religion Unplugged is doing. So I'm, I'm honored to be here. Yeah, so maybe we should start with your journey to actually being diagnosed. And I'm curious what that was like, just to put a name to those battles that you had internally and what that was like to maybe feel some control over it, or maybe you don't feel control over it, but <laughs> <laughs> what that was like. I'm, I'm glad you, you actually said a very magical word there, and I think it was unintentional, but it's very good. And you said putting a name to it, because actually the first chapter of the book is called Call It By Its Name. And the point there is that if you look back, you know, Judeo-Christian history, the idea that if and when we can name something, that is when we gain control over it. So if you look at, at the creation mandate, right? Like, like God gave us the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, but he also gave the job of naming the animals to Adam, right? And I think that's a, it's a detail that shouldn't be lost on us is that like Adam had the power then to name everything. And by doing that, he was given dominion over the the earth and, and and the animals and so that idea of when we name something we get control over it is it, it's foundational and that's why it's the first chapter of the book because for so much of my life i had not named this and so i didn't have control over it i knew growing up that something was different about me uh, you know, I, I, I say in the book that like I grew up in an evangelical household, right, where if you follow Christ and you emanate who he is, like everyone's going to want to be like you. Right. And that's going to draw people in. And secretly, I'm like, I don't know why anyone would want to be like me, because I am just like a wreck. You know, I there's things I can't stop thinking about, like little things set me off. I, 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 I'm worrying all the time. Like no one's going to want this. If this is having Jesus, like no one's going to want this Jesus right? No one's going to want this. And so, um, you know, I went through most of my life that way, feeling just like on the edge of a cliff. You know, if you've ever stood 
at the edge of a cliff and look down and you get like that feeling that pit in your stomach, that, 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 that rush of fire through your bones. Like that's, that was my normal. Um, the ability to not stop thinking about things I wanted to stop thinking about no matter how hard I tried. And so I went through most of my life. I tell people like, I, I have no idea how I got through high school or especially college. You know, I was in New York city, a very anxious city going to school. And it wasn't until a few years into my marriage where it, it all kind of came to a head. Um, my wife and I had a fight over something just so, I mean, like, I, I know it's stupid, right? Like, the wrong sweetener was in my coffee, right? Like we went to a coffee shop. I said, Hey, make sure uh, sweet and lows in there, not Splenda. I hate Splenda. And I take a drink of my coffee and it's, you know, Splenda. And I'm like, what, you know, not like angry, like punching a wall angry, but like, I literally could not, obs- could not stop obsessing over the fact that the wrong sweetener is in my coffee. And my wife just kind of breaks down and she's like, this is not normal. Like you need to get help. And so when you have someone in front of you that you love dearly, just broken and saying like, I like, I'm here for the long haul, but if this is what the long haul is, like, let me know, like, I need to know this. Um, and so I, I got help. And that's when just, you know, a few weeks after that, I was diagnosed with GAD, generalized anxiety d- disorder with OCD. There's a whole chapter in the book for loved ones of people who love people like me, right? Because I know how hard it has been for my wife. In fact, little nugget is like when, when she started reading some of the first um, manuscripts for the book, you know, I'd send it to the publisher and I'd say, Hey, you want to read the latest version? And so there was one version where she, she read it and it was really hard for her. Like she had to end up going back to counseling because, and, and for in a moment, I was like, did I do something wrong? Like, what did I, and she's like, no, but John, like, you know, I never want you to feel shame or anything, but that was a very hard time in our marriage and in my life where I just was always walking on eggshells. I didn't know what, 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 like what would set you off and um, what would like put you into one of these obsessive cycles. And I just realized I hadn't, you know, fully, um, worked through all this. And so reading the book brought that back up for her, you know? So there's an entire chapter that is for people like her and that's like giving guidance, you know, what to say, what not to say, you know, how to properly understand what's going on in someone like me. And, and there's also some things that I make clear that like, this is something my wife specifically said had to be in the book. So it's in the book and it's going to be helpful for you. (laughs) That's great. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I want to go back to what your experiences were like, but while we're here, maybe you can elaborate a little more on, you know, I'm thinking about um, people who aren't even diagnosed yet, or may Mm -hmm. may not have named that thing that is weighing them down yet. um, But people around them can see that something is wrong. And maybe some people take longer to also accept that they do need help. So what can people do that are around someone who maybe needs help, who needs some kind of help, but they don't know what that might be, and maybe who's silently struggling and not asking for help, 
You know, how do you help someone who is not asking for your help? Yeah, I'll say something here and it's going to sound trite and I don't mean it to be, but it's like, that's part of the reason I wrote this book. So I would be like, give them this book, right? And if you like can't afford it, like, let me know, like email me because um, part of what this is, is for people who are maybe kind of on the edge, like they're teetering, like, do I have this? Do I not? Right. And I'm not out here trying to like diagnose that everyone who maybe have a a tinge of anxiety is clinical. Like, please don't like, no, but um, I think there are plenty of people out there who are that and haven't yet gotten the help or really named it. And so I would say like, like this might be a good entry point. Besides that, I would say, you know, one of the things that I talk about is that you, as the person who loves someone like me, you have a right to be heard. And that's one thing that I tell um, the anxiety sufferer is like, just as much as you want to be understood and heard when it comes to what's going on inside of you, you have just as much responsibility to let the person in your life who loves you be understood and heard as well, because they're going through a lot. And so I would say that it requires, um, it requires the loved one to be, be open and be honest about like how this is affecting you. And so that was honestly, Megan, like that, that was the moment that got through to me. Right. Like, like I said, I knew there was something like a little off about me, but I'm like, oh, this is just my personality. I'm just kind of an on edge person. Right. And so but when when your wife is broken in front of you and saying, like, John, like, I don't think this is normal. You have to understand. And she kind of walked me through like this is what my life is like because you're like this. Right. And I'm not saying I don't love you. I'm not saying again that I'm not in this for the long haul, but you have to understand what this is doing to me and and even just like my mental health. And so I would say like to that loved one, be open, be honest. You have a right and deserve to be heard and walk that person in a loving way through what your life has become as you are dealing with the side effects of that person's disorder. So maybe we can uh, zoom out a little too, because so this is talking about mental illness in a very intimate setting, you know, in a marriage um, where hopefully, you know, you're committed to staying in it but it's a little different with friendships. Um, people may be, you know, easier cutting someone off in a friendship. And then also just thinking about it on a national level, like a national conversation about mental health or a church-wide, uh, denominational-wide kind of conversation. Um, I'm curious, you know, what you thought about the Christian responses to Simone Biles, for example, pulling out of the Olympics. Um, some of that got really heated and, you know, I think maybe people reacted before understanding all of the dangers of her trying to compete, um, in a disoriented, very physical, um, problem she was having. Um, but, you know, perhaps some of the concerns that people latched on to were a little more real, like these worries that young people may be self-diagnosing too much and that, they're using a mental break um, from school or work, and maybe this has gone too far. Some people will say that we're going to form these fragile, less resilient young people, or maybe we're giving too much weight to our emotions and not rationalizing out um, how we should really be grounding ourselves. So I'm curious how you would just respond to, and I'm sure you have, you know, 
in other spaces, but for this podcast, yeah, uh, maybe yeah, you can yeah. catch people up to date on how you think that some people had perhaps um, the wrong response in that moment. Yeah. Oh man, there's so much there. Um, let me bite off. Let me start. And then if I get off track, just put me back on track because there's so much. I'll I try. Say here. Yeah. Um, I would say, first of all, in general, I think the Christian response to mental health has been, it's been bad. It's been bad over the years. And I talk about just in the book, like how my own Christian family responded to this. Um, my mom, I talk about just some painful conversations that happened there, just about like, you need to have faith, you need to pray about this. And, you know, so I, I think the church has not done a great job. In fact, there is a chapter called The Prescription for the Church, right? Where I talk about how how I feel like the church can do better and giving them you know, some, some very practical steps on how to, um, love and accept and minister to people in their pews who, who have this. So I think generally the church has treated this as a faith issue, as a prayer issue, as a sin issue, even like you're having this because you're living a, you know, a life of sin or, or something like that. And so I, I go through in the book, like why, why that's wrong. I call it a, I call it a proper theology of suffering. And so I unpack what is a proper theology of suffering. And in the end, it's it's not that God is punishing us. You know, he's not doling out a little anxiety here, a little depression there because we're not living up to his standards. You know, the truth is there's suffering, there's brokenness in the world. And actually what God is doing is he's redeeming that, right? He's using it for our good and his glory. He promises that. And so I talk about how I've come to that understanding of what that means for my anxiety. So that would be the first, like the first part of the response is the church hasn't done it right. And, you know, I think we can do it better. And, and part of that is this proper theology of suffering. Now, let me get to kind of more the cultural response. I think I was very disappointed that the Simone Biles story got to a place where it was like, it was like, if you were on the right, you, you had to believe this way. If you're on the left, you had to believe this way. If you were, a, you know, a conservative, you had classic to, America. Yeah. And I'm just like, like not everything is right or left Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. Right. And so I, I was very disappointed in some of the conservative reaction that, oh, this is the, you know, the wussification of America on full display. This is where participation trophy culture has led us. And, you know, I think, as you had said, Megan, like, like, what I hope people understand is when it comes to clinical anxiety, depression, you know, mental health issues, there is, there is literally something that is going on in your brain and body that is off, right? Um, I think sometimes when we call it mental health, we think it's like it's in our heads, but not like physically in our heads. And yet it's physically in our heads, <laughs> right? And, and so like, like Simone, like if she starts having panic attacks, the twisties, as she was calling them, she could literally kill herself by attempting something as dangerous as what she was and break her neck or be paralyzed for the rest of her life. Like that's not the wussification of America, people like that is like. No, that's called self-preservation. And we like, I actually think it like for someone to do uh, what she does in, in her state or to, to attempt it like that, that's the definition of crazy. Like, no, don't do that. Like, 
that, you know, don't do that. Don't go stand in front of a bus. If you know, your leg is broken and you can't get out of the way. No, that's crazy. You know? So I, so that would be kind of my, my, my second response. The third response is kids have been playing hooky for as long as, you know, there's been school. Right. So the people are like, well, are people going to use this as an excuse? Well, of course, you know, there's people who pretend to have cancer to 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 get out of things. Right. I mean, there was a prominent faith uh, uh, pastor back in Hillsong. This was like back in like the early 2000s that pretended to have cancer, wrote a song about it. Right. It, it became a popular, you know, uh, radio hit, you know, like we cannot just say because there are some possibilities of exceptions that we can't then treat this seriously. Right. And so, you know, I pretended to be sick growing up, you know, that doesn't mean like, oh, well, if, if someone does say they have a cold, we can never believe them then like, no, you know? And so I do think it has to be an individual um, uh, response. I would say that my encouragement is I talk about there's a difference between clinical and episodic, right? Now, listen, I do think that that kids in our day and age are under a pressure that even I don't fully understand, right? Like I, I came up in an age where even there wasn't social media yet when I was in high school. I cannot imagine what it's like to have social media in high school these days. So you know what? Yeah, like if a kid is like, maybe they're not a clinically depressed or have clinical anxiety, but if they're like, I, I just like the pressure is too big. I, uh, you know, I, I need to take a day. You know what? I'm going to err on the side of giving them a day. Now, listen, if they start abusing that and they're, you know, and it's like they're, they're on the, on the, on the verge of truancy, like that common sense would say, okay, let's have a conversation about that. Right. But let's not, let's not say, well, because maybe some kids would take advantage of it or, or, or kids these days are weak. Like <laughs> I, I just get so frustrated sometimes where, where people are like, you know, well, my parents raised me this way, you know? And I'm like, yeah. And you're the one that has daddy issues. Like you, you wear it as a badge of honor that, that now that you're older, that your parents maybe raised you this way or society was this way, but you're the one that has like, you know, no relationship with your parents, or you're the one that has, you know, a, a lot of other issues. Like, don't look on that nostalgically and say, well, I was so tough. It's like, no, look at you're, you're bearing the effects of that, you know? So um, that's a little bit of a soapbox, but I would just say like, let's, let's not throw the, you know, the proverbial baby out with the bathwater because there are some kids who may, you know, take advantage of even some adults who would take advantage of this. There are adults that take advantage of businesses that give them, you know, unlimited vacation. Well, that doesn't mean like every company needs to now stop giving unlimited vacation. No, you need to deal with the employee that's taking advantage of that, figure out if that's real or not. Right. And so I would say to parents, if you have a child who is taking a lot of mental health days, you can approach that two ways. Is that the wussification of America and they are, they, are, they are taking advantage of that or maybe they need to go to the doctor and you need to have them talk to someone about it, right? Like maybe that's a symptom of a larger problem. So I'm glad you mentioned social media because, um, you know, a lot of people probably saw that recent story about 
Facebook had not been honest about how Instagram, for example, has been affecting teen girls. There are a lot of pressures um, comparing yourself, body image issues, just also just feeling isolated and depression and loneliness that I think especially teens are feeling. Um, and so, you know, the question comes to mind of we're all in this social media ecosystem, kind of whether we want to be or not. You can obviously elect not to be, but for many people with their job, you do have to be on social media um, and it is a part of our lives. So, you know, I've watched your social media and I think the way that you use social media is quite different than a lot of other people and that you're very vulnerable online. Um, and even through your work at I Am Second, you know, you've written a lot about personal things in your life, um, your sister's death, your parents' divorce. Um, you posted a picture of you uh, recently having a panic attack. And that to me was just, you know, it's like gut-wrenching to see on your page. And also um, it's just so transparent and honest. And I think like, that's something that a lot of people don't feel in some religious communities, but also they don't find it on social media. Um, and I'm just wondering, how do you negotiate those boundaries of how much you share on social media and how much you consume on social media? And how have you come to this place of, um, of navigating your own social media platforms? It's a great question. I don't always do it well. Um, case in point, my wife the other day was like, you know, you put on there about like your panic attack. Like I was in the other room. Maybe you would have wanted to give me like a heads up that like, I mean, she knew I was having one, but like, <laughs> you know, I, and I'm like, babe, I'm sorry. You're right. Like I should have, I should have said, Hey, just so you know, I'm putting this out to the world, but I'm also a writer. And so part of like, I think through my fingers. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes like my wife is like the opposite of that. Right. And so um, so that's part of it. Right. I think through my fingers. Right. And I have found that being vulnerable and open is just like if you talk about like a best policy, it's it's one that may get you uh, in, in, in scare quotes in trouble, like with your wife at some point. Um, but in general, it's it's just going to be what's going to lead to the most life-giving for you and for other people. You know, I live in suburbia. I live in Frisco, Texas, which is, you know, the fastest growing suburb like in the country. And so much of suburbia is like fake, you know? And I don't say that and like, I hate it. I, I live here. Like I lived in New York city and I will never live there again. Right. I don't like, I don't like that. Right. Oh, but, come on. You're yeah. You know, I can't do it. I can't <laughs> do it. And, um, and so there, I also live in the Bible belt and there's this like fake it, like, you know, everything's great. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Like, yeah. You know, I, I'm blessed. I'm so Jesus. blessed. Yeah. You know, blessed and highly favored, you know? Um, and I just like, I have a personal, um, crusade for lack of a better word to like tear down some of the fakeness that we see. And so, um, that's been a journey. I think it really did start at, I am second, you know? So, this whole book can really be traced back to one article that I wrote at I Am Second. 
And um, my job when I was at I Am Second as the editor-in-chief was to create a written content engine, if you will, that was churning out um, uh, through words what the other half of the organization was churning out through video. And just as the videos were real and raw and hit you hard, like that's, that's what I was hired to do on the written side. And so we started doing a bunch of that. And it, it just like, as I started getting contributors to write and people were opening up and people were responding well to that, there was kind of like this, like, you know, this is tap, this like knock at my heart that was like, Hey, uh, you need to do this as well, you know? And so that's when I, I sat down and was like, there's a part of me, there's a part of my life that I haven't been open and vulnerable about, vulnerable about, you know? Um, and that was my anxiety and OCD because there was a real fear in my life that I just, I didn't, I didn't want to be labeled the anxiety guy, the OCD guy, meaning, especially as it comes to work, I never wanted to be dismissed. I never wanted my opinions, my thoughts, my ideas, my concerns to be dismissed because, oh, maybe that's just the OCD. Maybe that's just the anxiety, you know? But it was really, I feel like, you know, not to over-spiritualize it, but the Holy Spirit saying like, like, leave that up to me. Like, I, I think I'm, I'm going to do a lot more with this and, and leave it, leave it up to me. And so I, um, I did that and the response was absolutely incredible. And that's when I was like, oh, the power of vulnerability is even more so than I realized. Like, yes. Um, so how do I balance that on my social media? I've just decided like, I'm just going to try to be as vulnerable as possible. And so, you know, like when I was having that panic attack, um, part of me was thinking, I know there are other people out there who A, are going through this and need to know that they're not alone. And B, I don't want to present a buttoned up, I'm perfect. You know, part of what I talk about in the book is this is an ongoing battle for me. Chapter eight, it's an ongoing battle, right? Where I talk about like, I think there are some anxiety, OCD, especially Christian mental health books out there that are like, here's how I beat this. And here's how you can beat it too. And my point is, this is not a book about how you beat this, right? It's a book about how you manage this. It's a book about how you have faith in the midst of it. And it is a book about how you can mitigate it, right? But listen, I pray every day that the Lord would take this away from me. So far, he hasn't. So now what? Because I think that's the story that more people are living through rather than the story of like, I was miraculously healed from it. Here's my 17 prayers that I prayed, you know, my 24 things that I did to try to curry favor with the Lord to do it. Like, I just don't think that's reality. And, and so I want to present like, this is an ongoing battle for me. And yet, and I think this is the best news. The best news is like, it's not bad news that I'm still going through this. Like the best news is I'm still going through this. And yet this is what the Lord is teaching me. And yet this is how the Lord is using it. And yet God is still good. So that's kind of, 
that's how I manage it. Right. Like I just try to, I try to project that in, in what I write about, what I present to the world. And maybe you can briefly describe, um, you know, for people who've never had a panic attack, what is it like? Like, what is a panic attack? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was, I was just listening to uh, uh, another friend of mine describe it and I do think, and, and, and I'm going to steal a little bit of what he said, because I think it's important. I think sometimes you hear the word panic attack and you think I'm running around, you know, my hair's on fire. Like I, I, I can't sit down. I, you know, I just want to like run 90 miles an hour for three hours because that sounds panicky, right? Maybe for some people like that's the case although that sounds a little bit more like you're on meth um, than a panic attack. But, um, but for some people, that might be their, their reality and their, um, the way their body reacts. For me, it is, I kind of talked about earlier, that feeling of like you're standing on the edge of a cliff. And so it's like my body kind of goes into this, I mean, anxiety in general, right? And I talk about this in the book of just even explaining exactly medically what it is. It's your body reacting to a stimulus, a situation that it perceives as a, your mind then perceives it as a threat. So you get an email from your boss that's like, hey, John, I just think like maybe like next time, let's kind of work on this and let's do better, right? Like, I mean, that's not what happened, but I'm just giving that as an example. And your body, your mind perceives that as a threat. So something benign that maybe a lot of people can just be like, oh, constructive criticism, or, or even if it's not criticism, your body perceives it as a threat and you go into fight or flight mode as if someone were standing there at your neck with a knife. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Where am I? You know, you're caught between two magnets that are pulling you in opposite directions, or you're standing on that cliff and, and, and your heart is racing, your stomach drops, um, and so for me, it was, there, there had been kind of some stuff going on just as you get ready to launch a book, as you're trying to put food on the table for your family that had happened, that kind of put me into that hyper fight or flight mode. And so that's why I say for some people, yes, maybe they want to run 90 miles an hour for three hours. Um, some people, you know, it, it manifests itself in a way you, you, your heart races, you're sweating. Um, for me, it was like, I tried to lay down, but I couldn't stay still. And what I mean by that is not like, I mean, not like I was jittery, right? Like it wasn't like my hands were, but just like I wanted to move around, but I couldn't move around. And, and you're just kind of like caught in this in between. And so for me, like that day that you're talking about where I posted, like that's where I was at. I had also then, you know, I have certain medication for this very moment. I'm on a, I'm on a, a steady medication that kind of, takes my anxiety from an eight to a four um, is kind of how I describe it. But then there are times where it spikes and it's like a, a 22, right? And so I have a medication that I take that brings me down. And so when I posted that picture, I'd taken that medication. I was kind of coming down, but then, you know, it, it kind of, it can really make you like, for me, it kind of, I get like really emotional. You know, my wife was like, it's kind of like you're on your period, I guess. You know, I don't know if I can say that, but I just, I just did. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of that the state that I was that I was in. Yeah. Thanks for sharing about that. Um, well, 
you know, one other thing that I wanted to mention was, I know you've talked a lot about your faith and how your faith is a, is wrapped up in your experience of managing, you know, your anxiety. Um, but I know that you also intend this book to go to people who are maybe not religious at all. So could you comment about that and why um, this book is really for a wider audience than just Christians struggling with mental health? Yeah, so two things, um, and I kind of mentioned this. So let me start here. You talk about how my faith has informed this. I do want to say one thing. You know, I, I, I talked about having being on medication. My faith does not tell me that I can't be on medication for this. And I, I really want to make that clear because my faith growing up told me that I couldn't be on medication for this. I think that's oh, interesting. False. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, and so I view medication for this and, and you would not believe, you know, when I wrote that I am second article, how many people came out and said me too. Yeah. My dad's a pastor. There's one, one woman. I think I even include this quote in the book. My dad's a pastor. I thought I could never be on medication for this. Like, thank you. Like I'm going to go to the doctor today, you know? Um, and I think there's many more people than we even realize who maybe if it's not explicitly taught like that in the church, it's implied. If you have faith, mm -hmm. if you pray, you know, these things will go away. It's like medication. Like a spiritual sickness, yes. not a physical. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, my point is medication is a common grace that the Lord has given to us all. We don't think twice about taking an antibiotic if we have a sinus infection, but for some reason we, th we, we feel like we have to think twice about taking it for, you know, a, a mental issue. And I just think that's wrong. Like it's the Lord has given it as a common grace. So I wanted to make that point about, you know, kind of how my faith informs that, that as far as it being for a wider audience, <clears throat> here's what I would say. Just kind of like the 12 steps, you know, are based in spirituality, right? This book is based in faith. So there's no getting uh, around that. But I do think, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, I mean, I, I and, and, and that's not to say, by the way, like, I know, no, I specifically talk about Jesus and God and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so it's not just a spiritual book. Um, in scare quotes, why I think people who may not be that way can still read it is just like the 12 steps can say, you can be a Christian and still say there's a higher power. Right. And so I do think though, that like my prayer would be that someone who is not a Christian would read this and realize I can't do this on my own. Right. And that's the heart of the 12 steps that says you can't do this on your own. You have to submit to a higher power. I submit to you that that higher power is Jesus Christ, <laughs> right? And so by reading this book, you will realize like part of the lie of my anxiety tells me that I can control everything. Like that's, you know, I, I talk about some several of the lies that my anxiety tells me. One of those lies is that I can control everything. And so that's why I can get into a panic, right? Because in the end, I can't control everything, right? I have to admit that I can't control everything, that, that I am not the end all be all. And so I think that someone who is at least open to faith that reads this will realize, yeah, I can't control everything. And if you can't control everything, that leads you real quickly to the one who can control everything or has it under control, Me meaning that this is something he is working through. 
And, um, and so that's where I talk about the proper theology of suffering. That's where I talk about the book of Job being so helpful to my understanding. That's where I talk about the unhelpful um, faith tradition that I was brought up in that, that I think did a lot of harm and does a lot of harm to people with mental health. And so I explain all that. So long answer to a short question, but I, um, I think, I think maybe if, if someone is listening to this and, and they are a person of faith and they read it, I think you can have confidence giving it to someone who is not a person of faith, not in the sense of like, it's not a bait and switch. I mean, it's faith based scripture based, but I, let me put it this way. I think people who are struggling with mental health are probably more open to faith than even we realize because of what I just said, because we do know deep down in our souls that we can't control everything. And that's part of what's wrong, right? We want to, but we can't. And so there's this ready, this inner battle going on. And so I think if you, if you read this book and give it to someone and say, Hey, listen, here's a book on, on, on anxiety and OCD. I know you struggle with it. It is faith-based, but I think you'll realize it's not bashing you over the head with it. Listen, you got to admit some certain things. And once you admit those things, it's going to lead you somewhere else. That was such a great explanation. Thanks for, you know, you're great at articulating um, where you're coming from and, and just being honest about what your perspective is and what other people might find helpful. Um, so I just wanted to remind everyone listening, um, the book is called Finding Rest. It's by Craigle Publications and you can order it now for pre-release and it officially releases September 28th. So yes. And they can go to, they can find all that information at findrestnow.com. And so um, that'll show you all the places you can order it, whether Amazon or Target or Walmart or wherever, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, uh, everyone in my small group needs one, like there's a discount link for a bulk order. Um, which is only like 25. That's the minimum purchase. So I just, I actually just had someone from a church uh, tell me yesterday um, they, they, they got their copy early. Like some people are getting it early. I, I don't pretend to know exactly how that's happening, but um, they're like, I want to buy these for all my church group leaders. I'm like, okay, there's a link. Go ahead. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, John. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks for, thanks for just taking this conversation and this topic seriously. I think for so long, the church hasn't, you know, either hasn't talked about it because they don't think it's an issue, or maybe it's just kind of a scary issue. Like, what do you, you know, um, in this day and age, like if you say one wrong thing, like, oh, let's just ignore it. And so I'm just so encouraged by more people, more outlets, more places saying, let's just, let's have this conversation. Absolutely. And if you want to keep the conversation going, um, we would love to publish some pieces by you. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, Well, thanks so much. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by me, Religion Unplugged Managing Editor, Megan Clark. Edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award winning global religion news coverage, or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.